Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another in a Sundance series of episodes in which I am madly attempting to talk about movies every day. We'll see how long that lasts or how long I last at doing that. But I fortunately have been able to recruit many familiar faces to help me out with this folly. Uh, and for today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Beatrice Loiza. Welcome, Beatrice. Hello. It is nice to have some sort of human contact throughout our virtual festival experience. Yeah, it is It is missing just the chatter, the post and pre-film chatter. Have you tried any of the Avatar enabled? <laughs> I haven't, uh, but I've seen some other people do that. It looks fun, but there's a lot of different features on various different platforms that they've offered up to us, but I'm a bit lazy with trying to figure out how to do all of them just with the craziness of watching and writing and all this other stuff going on in my life. So now, unfortunately, I haven't tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me neither. It's the same thing. I just figure I'd, I'd go down some tech rabbit hole. Of like right. An and it'd just be time. like, Exactly. And that's already two hours, one hour. It's like, well, I should probably be doing something else besides making an avatar with my face on it. However cool that would perhaps yeah. seem. <laughs> yeah. And they all seem to remind me of the Microsoft paperclip when I look at them. Anyway, oh, so. Yeah. The little googly eyes. Clippy. I've been getting email invites to like zoom virtual after parties and it's like, come have a drink with us. And I'm just thinking my own drink. That's not really that fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, yeah, that, I don't know. It's, it's somehow definitely not the same. I, think. <laughs> I mean, it's a very fine line between just slowly drinking oneself into a stupor and happening to have a laptop open in front of you. So I don't know. <laughs> exactly. But it's been another day of movies and I think probably one of the bigger movies from this weekend that people will be curious about and that I know that you've seen is a Ben Wheatley movie and that is In the Earth. I, I won't even start describing what it's about. I will leave that to you. <laughs> yeah, so I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. It's it's certainly not his strongest effort, but it definitely bears his distinct directorial mark for those curious how this would turn out after you know, the disastrously bland Rebecca adaptation. La Faire Rebecca. Yeah, La Faire Rebecca. <laughs> Which, you know, a Wheatley apologist might say he just simply didn't try. Very, very well may be true. I mean, I that's kind of my takeaway from that film as well. This has got extreme gore, folk horror, uh, psychedelic visuals, insane cultists, talking plants. <laughs> and as the kids say it, you know, the, the movie is mostly just vibes in a sense. Um, you know, it doesn't really tell you what's going on in terms of the world at large. And it doesn't really cue you into really what the end goal of the characters are. But what we do know is that there's some sort of sickness going on that forces people into isolation and, and mask wearing. Part of this is Rooted in truth, I mean, this was a movie that Wheatley completed over the past year throughout the pandemic, and it's an open-air movie shot mostly in the forest, so he was able to maintain social distancing. <laughs> but uh, back into the movie, our, our main guy is played by John Fry. He's some sort of doctor or medical researcher. He arrives at this log cabin. The mood's very odd and uneasy. 
And he's supposed to be joining another doctor. They're located somewhere deep in the forest to help with some sort of project. But the only way to get there is by foot. And so he's led on this journey by another woman who becomes the second most important character. Um, And at this point, it's kind of shifting into Alex Garland annihilation vibes. Then on their journey, they get mugged. John Fry's foot gets injured, which is really only the beginning of the various brutalities that that foot will experience. Uh, And then, you know, the film sort of shifts into its folk horror mode. We like meet this insane guy that's living out in the forest who essentially captures them and the film starts getting very gory. (laughs) And, you know, that's only really the second act. Uh, It just really kind of shifts gears in unexpected ways that it's arresting and it's a very delirious psycho thriller that kind of captures a certain horror because you know you running into one sort of horror that you feel is already established from the get-go but then it like layers on new ones in unexpected and really unnerving ways and to its credit it's it's not really in any direct way about covid but it latches on to this structure of feeling this like paranoia and you know shift in our behavior and our way of conducting ourselves around one another and and runs with that and builds out from that essential feeling i suppose so i mean i i think you know script wise it's not the most focused the movie is you know extremely psychedelic it has these long stretches of like intense visuals strobe lights and it just kind of relishes in that for several moments in the movie it gets you off balance kind of immerses you in this delirious state of beings of its characters who are lost in terms of what's going on but then also perhaps poisoned by these forces that we learn about as as the film goes on though at times this insistence on psychedelia does kind of feel like it functions as a crutch to you know it's obviously intentionally ambiguous to create this sense of unease but it also at times feels a bit unsatisfying given how much it's throwing at you and this refusal to really cue you in is a bit frustrating but I mean regardless just the experience the palpable experience of the movie I found pretty arresting though uh, I, I am also someone that tends to like really violent gory things I, I probably wouldn't recommend this to someone that didn't really dig kill list for instance right um, <laughs> Definitely not a recommendation if you're not into just this disgusting, kind of bluntly violent, constantly coming at you. Right. Wait, so what, I wonder if you can tell me a bit about the psychedelic aspect of it. Like what, what visually does that, does that mean? Yeah. I mean, it just kind of, it shifts into these moments where we're not really even seeing anything concrete. They're just these abstract visuals kind of like tie-dye-esque colors warped across the screen it's like the experience of trying to reproduce like being knocked over the head and this color wave that can sometimes come over you when you feel like you're losing consciousness and it also has abstract sound design that kind of matches that lugubrious feeling of not exactly being fully conscious Right. I mean, I have to admit that this is a movie that 
I uh, I pulled the ripcord about halfway through, uh, so I, I'll have to find a way to to, to finish it. But it, uh, yeah, I the, the just the the runway for me was was pretty pretty long in terms of I don't know the the the, the walk through the forest. Uh, I mean, and then also I was just I was just a little put off by the the way it was shot. I thought was pretty flat in the forest so that it's trying to create this sense of intrigue or suspense, but it just looked kind of cruddy to me. And then I have to say just the caveat that of course I'm watching this at home on whatever limitations (laughs) are on my TV. So maybe it looks beautiful uh, or maybe it looks haunting, but it just, it wasn't. So if only to see something more going on visually, I'll want to see, see the rest of Mm. these abstract abstractions. The abstractions definitely become more intense in the latter half of the movie. That's interesting. I I do agree with what you're saying about how it's not that interestingly shot in the beginning, though I was thinking about the movie in terms of it trying to convey this feeling of claustrophobia and being boxed in while also being an open air movie. And I feel like that a little plays into its, I'm not sure the specifics of your complaints, but I, I do feel like the way it was shooting the outdoors was like strangely boxed in. What I think is interesting about the way it's shot in the beginning, I think you're right. It is sort of bland the way it captures the journey through the forest, though I think strangely enough, what this achieves is, you know, it's creating this, I don't know, to me, like a sense of fatalism that it's, they're sort of boxed in that they don't actually have much room to explore. Their path is already kind of carved out for them. And so it's kind of recreating this sort of claustrophobia of being like kind of pushed in a bit, even though it's an open air shoot. It's supposedly something that can be also captured in a way that might seem very expansive. It's almost like the opposite. I don't know how intentional that was or if it was actually just bland, but it does kind of tie into the end of the film. We, our characters are kind of put into a situation where they're literally cornered off through mysterious forces, uh, despite the fact that they're in an open field. <laughs> mm. Though, um, I hope this isn't, you know, too much of a spoiler, though there are, there are similarities to a certain M. Night Shyamalan film, The Happening... <laughs> And I mean, that film is obviously not considered the best film, though I I think I like it, though I kind of take it more as a comedy. There are, uh, let's say, plot similarities. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. So I don't know if that will uh, diminish the film in your mind or at least make it a bit more intriguing to the curious listener. (laughs) Yeah, well, the M. M. Night Shyamalan movies, they're often divisive, I guess is the word of, of the moment. Um, but that actually does intrigue me and, and weirdly want make me want to rewatch one of M. Night Shyamalan movies, which is just sort of fun to do once in a while. Oh, um, yeah. I watched Signs again for like this project in the past year. And I was like, yeah, this I mean, I really like Signs. It's a movie that affected me quite a bit yeah. when I was younger. And I was glad to see that even as an adult a little bit less scared of aliens than I was when I was younger for it to still have that um, effect on me. Yeah. The biggest thing I remember about signs, because I haven't seen it since it came out, was that the noises that creatures make in that movie, they sound a little bit the same as when your stomach is growling in a very loud way, which I thought 
if it's on purpose is sort of an ingenious way to get inside your head because Definitely. it feels like it's it's coming from within the house i.e your body so yeah no that movie is um really really good at just making you uneasy and scared without really even showing anything mm. and you know it does that that like primal thing where the dogs are reacting and you don't really know why the dogs are reacting the, yeah. like in the thing where you know you know something's wrong but you, you as humans we can never really know but it's like instinctual and so you know the, the dogs are acting out i mean that always gets me <laughs> yeah yeah it's true for the poor poor dogs cursed with sensitivity yes um, <laughs> well a couple other things i just want to mention just two more things um <laughs> One is that what you're describing just makes me think of Peter Strickland a little bit. Um, Then the other thing is that I would say, just to connect it to the rest of the festival, it feels like there's a healthy strain of, I don't know, psychedelic or more broadly speaking, sort of surreal uh, abstractions going on. And from movie to movie, just thinking of things like the Strawberry Mansion. Mm -hmm. Right. Also this other film, The Blazing World, which I didn't really like, but it definitely fits that criteria of being just like a hallucinatory trip down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this is one moment where I can talk briefly about a a glitch in the matrix, because it is a documentary, not about hallucinations, uh, but about something like it, which is this, it's about the belief in simulated worlds, uh, in, in the belief that you know, we are living in the matrix just to just to cut to the chase, basically. <laughs> and it's directed by Rodney Asher, who did Room 237, the beautifully paranoid study of different theories surrounding The Shining. In this case, it's a theory about the world or the universe, such as we perceive it. And Basically, he interviews different people who believe this and with backgrounds and interests in where you might expect it in sort of science fiction and the you know rich world of comics and, and gaming. I mean, the couple of twists there are, one is that he lets people talk through avatars and not really just simplistic small figures on, on a screen. It's like some bizarre instagram filter basically you know where um you know i don't i'm not a big gamer so this is probably you know much more familiar that's the other thing is like an audience the audiences might kind of split in different ways with a movie like this depending on your familiarity with it which is pretty interesting i think so you know like the first person you're talking to is i don't even remember i think he has horns or something you know he's he's just this totally like synthetic figure on your screen but he the voice you hear is just of this dude who's trying to get into where his belief in simulated worlds uh, first started. So it's a really smart move because, you know, it gives you a distance that, that just kind of makes you feel the idea and also gets you into the imaginative space of the people he talks to. So that's one thing he does. And it's no surprise, of course, that Philip K. Dick is, is in the movie in the form of this lecture in France he gave about his sincere belief that he is living, that we are all living in a simulated world and that he was aware of that and was writing about that, which is just a perfect piece to put in the movie because it's one of those things, you know how when like different little subcultures surrounding different conspiracy theories, there are just these touchstones, you know, like the grassy knoll. Mm-hmm. So I imagine in the case of, of you know, simulated worlds, it's like, oh yeah, you mean the Philip K. Dick speech. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, 
you know, one as if that's some proof that a man who wrote so extensively about paranoiac drug visions might believe that he's in a simulated world. Yeah, I, I imagine he did. But that's, I guess, persuasive if, if you're already in, so inclined. Um, so, yeah, those are two things in it. The movie, I think, is... It's an intriguing study, but it does this turn about two thirds of the way through where one of the people that they feature is a guy who is now in prison because he believed so deeply that his parents, for example, were just simulacra um, that he killed them. He shot them to death. And that is a harrowing stretch in the movie. I think it's sort of bold in that it's here are possible <laughs> real world consequences of believing deeply in a particular philosophy or frame of mind. At the same time, I had a sort of ambivalence that I also had with Room 237, which is I couldn't tell how much uh, Rodney Asher, how he was using it or how he was taking this information about this person. Um, in Room 237, I could never quite tell if he really, at some level, believed a lot of the people he was talking to. And what I didn't like about Room 237 was the sense of interpretation itself as a kind of conspiratorial mindset and, and, and sort of vice versa. Conspiracy theory is not necessarily an actual form of interpretation uh, or critical thought, I think. So it's not the same kind of thing in this movie, but it's just it's food for thought. Uh, in, in, at that point. So I would say Glitch in the Matrix, definitely something to see. Um, almost something that it doesn't have to be like in a midnight slot. I could, it completely fits, but it's interesting to think about, you know, and then it's, it's, it, has all the, it has a new, constantly renewed power to it just because of the awareness of like QAnon and all the people who do just inhabit these completely different frames of reference. So and in that sense, it's almost a political movie. So that's a glitch in the matrix. And maybe you also saw a midnight movie. I think you were talking about. Yeah, I did. I saw Censor by Prano Bailey Bond. It's kind of like your old, an old, or trying to be a sort of an old fashioned 80s, you know, psychedelic slasher movie. Though I can't help but kind of like lump it in with this, you know, trend you know, American horror recently about like making it very obvious that this movie is about trauma. You know, I mean, horror movies have always in a sense been about trauma, but it's like, it's almost like the internet is like, just like the idea of like linking these two elements, like horror and trauma just feels like it's so much more like obvious now, mm. nowadays. And like, there's you know been a bunch of other, you know, this and like the blazing world. And, you know, there's also Mayday to an extent is kind of about you know, women confronting their past demons and traumas through inserting themselves into an alternate world. But this one is, you know, much more clearly a horror film, Censor is. I actually thought it was a bit more interesting than these other films I'm listing. It mines trauma um, against the backdrop of, of the video nasties phenomenon of the 80s and the moral panic that erupted in the UK because of these films, our protagonist, she is working as a film censor. And so she's responsible for cutting and approving, you know, these new films. And eventually she does get sucked into this world um, on the production side of, of making these slasher movies. So, you know, she effectively inserts herself into these movies that she's responsible 
for changing and making safe for the everyday person. Um, it's sort of a metaphor for the fact that she herself is, you know, someone who is self-repressing incredibly after experiencing this traumatic moment as a child. She like lost her sister. It's implied that her sister was kidnapped. And, you know, even as an adult woman is holding out, hoping that they can find her sister, despite the fact that her parents have kind of given up the search. And, you know, at one point they kind of say that we want to issue the death certificate because we there needs to be closure to the whole thing. But she refuses that and thus the uh, plunge into the murkier sides of the movie. You know, it's it's very ambitious. It's like trying all these things that like sometimes feel a bit like it's mimicking like other greater directors. I don't want to say greater, but like, you know, more confident directors. It's like very kind of Peter strickland to like bring him up again, um, especially in the first half, just like the mood is really constructed by sound and, uh, you know, this experience of like her watching these movies and having the headphones on, uh, kind of similar to Burberian Sound Studio in, in that respect. You know, in the beginning, she's super repressed. Her hair's in a bun, she's wearing glasses, and she's like watching these movies kind of with a straight face, but then eventually she dismantles a bit. It's kind of treads similar territory to Saint Maud. Um, I don't know if mm. you've seen that. It's like yeah. another British horror film about the horrors of self-repression. Uh, I think I'm not like, you know, Saint Maud isn't one of my favorite movies ever, but I think that one is a little bit tighter. It's just like uh, the payoff is being more successful than this one. This one kind of ends on like a David Lynchy note that I think will be a bit divisive but all in all i i did admire this i really think it's interesting how the director factors in our relationship to images and movie watching um, with the way that we're dealing with these really dark experiences in a you know very palpable way um i think the story itself has a lot to be desired but i really like that element of the movie and, you know, overall, I'd enjoy it. And I, I do hope that it would eventually get picked up. I'm not really sure with these Sundance movies. There's so many and, you know, some of them just kind of get lost in the ether. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting what you're saying about trauma being sort of more openly, the, the, yeah. the be more openly part of the text, you know, rather than the subtext. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because, I don't know. I've only really been immersed in, in, you know, film conversations and film Twitter as of the past couple of years. But um, I feel like, you know, ever since like hereditary, essentially, it's just like, it just feels like the way people are approaching horror films and, you know, the way trauma is, is linked to them is just, it, I don't know, it just feels a bit on the nose. And it's like horror film has always kind of been about this, but it's like because so many people loved you know, Hereditary and like Ari Oster. It's just like now it's the way in which like these elements are being spoken about it just feels a bit like it's a new thing that's not actually new at all. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, you know, it's just talking about feminism in, in the past couple of years and like Me Too and like our need to understand, you know, the experiences of women in large part that have been kind of told to suppress these messier sides of themselves. And that kind of plays into the suppression of speaking out when something is you've been abused or 
you know, in your work or in your daily life. I mean, that is kind of, I feel like something people have been talking about in, in recent years and um, seems to be kind of at the forefront of public discourse. And it seems like a lot of films have been picking up on that and to mixed outcome, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to to watch how the genre evolves and responds. I mean, it uh, in in a good way, it feels like it's good for it to be responsive um, in in that way, and and maybe also it's it's a result of more uh, more women directing as well. So it's it's something that doesn't have to be found in the text. Definitely right in terms of just the fact that there are more women directors, and you know you're seeing different types of trauma more centered in these films. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't really have a problem with any of that. I, I'm really enjoying a lot of these films, um, though it is interesting that there's just seems to be so many that are very easily kind of whittled down to a woman facing her trauma, you know, and like oftentimes it's actually the the ways in which these movies are really different and unique is just like, you want to go beyond that. And it's like, just the phrase in and of itself just feels already like it's becoming a genre unto itself, <laughs> mm. which is kind of just like, well, that's always been there in a sense in film history. But like, how are these new films about women's trauma, like distinct? Because like films about women's trauma have, that's not, that's not a new thing, but you know, the fact that there are with these new women directors is the fact that they're being presented in maybe distinct ways is, but like that, I feel like that hasn't been fully articulated. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's a bigger conversation. I was about to say. I know. It's like, I feel (laughs) so inadequate, but yeah, it's some, there's something there, some golden nuggets in our uh, long-winded discussions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That came out of talking about censor. And then there was one other movie, one last movie that uh, we'll talk about, very different from uh, these other movies, but just really something that uh, I mean, I I really like, and that movie is El Planeta, and and I think you were also uh, a big fan. Yes, I, I was a huge fan of it. Uh, it came at a time during the festival when I was like, man, I, I don't really feel that hot on anything just yet, but then I watched El Planeta, and all of a sudden whole new world opened for me in terms of Sundance. Yeah, it's the the director is I guess it's a first time feature. She's ordinarily a visual artist. Yes, a visual artist, performance artist who I, you know, I actually knew nothing about prior to yesterday when I watched this film. But yes, it's her first feature film. Uh, she, Amalia Ullman is her name and she also acts in the movie. She's originally from Argentina. So she's based in New York City. And the movie itself is is set in Spain. Gijón? Yeah, Gijón. <laughs> Gijón, okay. Yes. Um, which is actually home, I only know really because it's also home to a, a, a film festival. I mean, how how would you describe the story? I don't know. It's... Yeah, it's, you know, this very elegant black and white comedy. Uh, it's essentially a series of vignettes um, that, you know, individually might seem kind of banal or inconsequential but you know they ultimately add up to to create this portrait of of two women um one of them being Amalia Oman who's the daughter and it's the other woman is her her mother so you know it's it's this portrait of these two women 
but with really subtle, or it builds up to like really subtle sociopolitical elements. It reminds me a lot of Eric Romare, Hong Sang-soo, like those types of films, you know, that style of movie with these really droll performances and, you know, the way that urban spaces come to life. But this is like, as we said, it's set in Gijon. It's like the city in the north of Spain and, you know, was a region that was, was really devastated by the 2009 financial crisis. Uman, again, is this, is the main character. She's this young woman. She's like a sort of fashion designer, hopeful. She's, um, you know, once studied in London, but, you know, now for family and financial reasons, she, she lives in her hometown with her mother, who is like this diva character. And, and the two women, they're, they're essentially grifters. Um, they live in the moment. Uh, they're very concerned with you know, appearances, fashion, and embodying this this idea of elitism and and luxury and I guess like hyper femininity. But the reality is that it, you know it's all just a cover for the fact that you know the mother is in this incredible debt and you know they're on the verge of you know losing their apartment and other sort of financial problems. So their priorities are definitely not straight. And, and you know, we don't see either of the women trying to search for a job or really trying to better their situation so much as they just, like, keep on, you know, adding more layers of, like, metaphorical makeup. <laughs> but, um, you know, as the film goes on, we realize, despite the fact that they're you know, really chic <laughs> and, you know, the mother actually wears this, like, big fur coat but you know despite that you know you see the mother shoplifting you know they barely really have enough to eat but the two women take it pretty casually they make jokes about it there's this sort of like shared indifference it's like they're both kind of annoyingly inconvenienced by the whole thing when you know the reality of their situation is is much grimmer and I, I really found that element of it refreshing. And if, in a way, it feels almost more honest uh, than these outwards, you know, heavy displays of, of suffering that we see in, in most movies about poverty. And, you know, it, it even spoke to, you know, my own experiences growing up with my mother. I won't get into details of that, but, you know, that, that element definitely resonated with me. Yeah, it's their precarious manner of living uh it's also never made precious really it's just the way they live and i i just grew to have this admiration for how both of them just sort of make their way through the world and it's funny you mentioned your mother because i i too saw an an, an echo or two uh, yes. i mean just i mean just also uh, it's a kind of creative spirit that each of them share the mother and, and the daughter i mean I think the mother at one point says, you know, I, I could have been an investigative reporter if, it, you know, <laughs> or something, you. <laughs> if it wasn't for you. Yeah. But she seems a lot of the time, uh, yeah, as you said, indifferent or uh, even at times just kind of serene in whatever. At one point, she's just learning English. She's on, on her iPad and just that kind of, yeah, ability just to return to these to, to learning something or, or you know, fashioning like particular way she wears like a ribbon in her hair I don't know there's still these little things that are, are really nice and and her daughter 
and then just the relation between them that they get into these really like (laughs) genuine seeming like spats and arguments and then they they're making up oh yes it's so funny and i i speak spanish i mean like i'm i'm peruvian so like i you know was also following the spanish and like their back and forth it is really really funny um though you know i think that that is to an extent captured in the subtitles but but yeah like, like you said it's absurd how like at one point the daughter is is on her laptop and they're watching some video and then you know the computer loses battery in there and she's like i guess i'll go charge it later at the library <laughs> like implying that they've lost electricity and you know there's another moment where it's it's not made overt in any way that they don't have heating but they're like cuddling up in bed because they're both super cold and they just like end up talking about how much they miss their cat <laughs> which is just you know amazing yeah there's one point where the mother one of the times they cut back to the mother is she's just watching an, an old video of the cat who has this i mean earlier you hear the cat's cr- meow being described as a cranky meow or something and it, it, it is <laughs> yeah. It is truly a cranky meow when we when we see the, the video. And yeah, I just like that there aren't comedic beats really either to like yeah. their 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 rapport. It just which is so important because I think this kind of relationship could easily become, you know, like like a easy comic conceit, you know, like mm-hmm. um frustrated daughter and, and mom is wacky or something and just going back and forth like that. But there's too much of an element of just Oh, this is just what we're doing. <laughs> yes. So it, ne- it never falls into that. And then there's the, uh, I wonder what you thought about the kind of brief dating experience that, that the daughter has, which I oh, thought was yes. was also really special, also in, in how it kind of subverts our, our expectations. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the moment where I guess she admits this, uh, he's originally from China, but like, He's kind of worldly, has money, and like lives in London. And he, you know, wines and dines her. And it seems to be this, you know, wonderful romance because he's also really into fashion. And she thinks that she's kind of met the guy for her, but then he turns out to be kind of scummy in like a way that's just like epitomizes the win- the one night stand, but like in a, a way that we don't really. That's, that's unexpected and like really fresh, I thought. Um, I also thought it was interesting that that they made him, you know, Chinese because, you know, there's awareness of, you know, a sort of moneyed class of, you know, Chinese immigrants in different parts of Europe, especially in Spain and France, you know, who have, you know, all of a sudden cropped up. Uh, a bit more so, you know, since the financial crisis and, you know, how this is the person that she like connects with because like she speaks a bit of English, you know, but then, you know, Prince Charming ends up not being so charming. <laughs> yeah. And and I actually thought it was a good example of some range in her performance too, because I mean, she's just, she just gives this genuine expression of hurt um, when that happens and concealing it a little bit. Um, so I don't know, that was kind of a poignant uh, moment that it it takes the air out of any expectation that this is going to be like a meet cute that then is kind of, I don't know, folded into the romanticizing her, her situation. Like, uh, so that was good. And then there are other details. Like she seems to be working as a stylist 
So she has this kind of pitch perfect Skype conversation with this just oh, yeah. magazine editor or something. Um, so I don't know. I like that touch and, and other things. And and just generally, like both her and her mother have these like very ex- expressive faces that, you know, even when they're just thinking, you kind of there's almost a bit of mischief sometimes so it's yeah she you know to me she kind of resembles Ana de Armas if you know that actress was like in more interesting movies um (laughs) but yeah no I I really you know to put it simply like really enjoy just like watching her expressions she has a very captivating face yeah and um yeah and then i don't know various little fashion flights of fancy that that they do there oh yeah and i think you know at the end i think their financial situation is is getting particularly grim and then they decide that they are going to attend this gala that martin scorsese will be in attendance and then like you hear on the radio like throughout the film they're talking about oh how scorsese is going to show up to like this big blowout and you know, they fancy themselves able to attend for some reason. That was kind of unclear to me. Uh, but eventually they go on this like ridiculous shopping spree <laughs> right when things are, are particularly bad for them. And then when they show footage, like over the credits. From... Oh, right. Yeah, because it was a real event, I believe. But I, I don't know if it actually took place in Gijon. I don't know. There's like something that's that's... Yeah, no, it's true. It's kind of trickily inserted there. Yeah. Um, final thought that I just remembered. There's this detail when we see the protagonist working on a piece of clothing. I guess she's like designing it. And we see that it has a Zara tag on it. Um, and, you know, I immediately thought, you know, Zara is this fast fashion behemoth that like offers these really high fashion styles for like really cheap prices you know, of course, the quality of the garments is, is really terrible. And they're clothes that's, you know, not durable, that's going to be breaking down. And, you know, there's also, you know, the industry at large is kind of problematic. I thought that was just kind of like a, a metaphor sort of for uh, how the women, you know, carry out their lives in a sense. And it's just funny that, you know, that brand is a Spanish brand. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I I didn't catch that. That is interesting. Yeah, I, I used to buy Zara, but you know, I eventually did learn. I was just ended up spending more of my money on it because like the clothes broke down so easily. Right. Yeah. So. Disposable couture. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to end end on that note. Um, that's. Um, I mean, on this film, not on the note of clothes falling apart, but. Uh, <laughs> On the film uh, El Planeta, and that's Amalia Ullman, and uh, all this within, I mean, I think less than 75 minutes, so it's a deceptively slim uh, sort of movie. Yes. We'll go back to watching more movies as as the festival wraps up. Thank you again, Beatrice, for uh, uh, joining me, and uh, happy viewing. Thank you. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. The opening music is called Montserrat by The Minarets. Special thanks to John Gaudio for co-producing this episode. For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.